Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 177th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. You can call me JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit in introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand, including in some fun, unconventional ways like graphic novels and animated videos. I am joining you from Austin, and our guest is going to uh, be joining us probably from the DC area. We are joined by Jim Pathakoukas. Uh, before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you can go ahead, get started typing in your questions to the comment section, and we will get to as many of them as we can. So our guest, Jim Pathakoukas, is author of The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised, uh, laying out a detailed roadmap for a freer, more prosperous, and more benevolent future, drawing on insights from top economists, historians, and technologists. Pathakoukas reveals that the failed futuristic visions of the past were totally possible and still are. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI. Uh, Pepecoucas also writes the Faster Please uh, Substack, um, and uh, you can sign up for that, uh, where he explores how technological innovation, economic growth, and pro-progress culture development can help foster and create and invent a better world. Jim, thank you for joining us. Ah, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. In the first pages of your book, The Conservative Futurist, you write a, uh, well, actually in the final pages, you write a letter to the America of the future. Um, it's tricentennial of 2073 to be exact, which uh, you intend to deliver in person. Um, I hope. <laughs> do we get a sense of your future self and, and the world that you'll be living in? Uh, but we also get a sense of you as a nine-year-old um, writing another letter uh, to the future on the bicentennial of July 4th, 1976. Before diving into the book, our audience likes to get a bit of a sense of the backstory of our um, guests and how it inspired the uh, professionals they became. So maybe a bit of it about where you grew up, influences that inspired your professional interest in futurism, technology, innovation. Tell us about that nine-year-old boy and <laughs> any experiences or events that helped to shape this scholar he would grow up to be. Well, I, I grew up in the uh, in a working class suburb of the uh, of Chicago area, western uh, western suburb of Chicago, and uh, back then, if you were interested in science fiction and the future, uh, there was not much. You know, it's not like today. You know, there was not much on television. You really had to go to the library and read about it. Which I did everything from you know comic books to uh, Ray Bradbury. I, I watched the Star Trek reruns. There wasn't much more uh, that really showed an optimistic future beyond that. It was also a period where, unfortunately, for someone who wanted to be excited about the future, that the culture had started to shift from uh, you know, from a from one which thought we could do anything, you know, space age, atomic age. Uh, which was, you know, the 1960s, by the early 70s, we started to see, at least, in, you know, we saw in science fiction, you saw a really kind of a, a darker turn. You had films like Soylent Green or Logan's Run uh, about really a a, 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 a a much poorer future, a future maybe of nuclear war, of overpopulation. Um, so it was unfortunate that I became interested in this topic just when what was being presented to me by the culture uh, turned so turned so incredibly pessimistic, and I get into in the book. I, I sort of get to why that is. So uh, you know, uh, it's 1976. Uh, there was an oil company which uh, wanted people to write letters to their to to the future to uh, to to the tricentennial 2076, and uh, it, and that, that and I uh, that that was collected in a in a pretty interesting book 
And a lot of those letters were super, super negative from people. They saw a future of of overpopulation, of, you know, uh, depleted resource, all that kind of stuff. And and that unfortunately, we're sort of still living with that, I think. We're still living with that kind of dystopian uh, uh, attitude. And that's, you know, that's, I think, is super, da- listen, it's a book about economics and history, but I think the culture matters. And I think a culture that thinks tomorrow is horrible and there's nothing we can do about it. And if we tried to do something about it, we would just make it worse. I don't think that kind of attitude can support a thriving society. Well, um, you're not going to find any disagreement here at the Atlas Society. People uh, like to say that politics is downstream from culture, but they never ask themselves, what is culture downstream from? And of course, it's downstream from philosophy. And how do we see man? Is he a heroic being um, with great potential? Or is he a fallen creature with uh, just a terrible nature? Um, and, and how do we see the world around us? Is it knowable? Um, can we discover it? Can we find objective truth? Or uh, is objective truth somehow um, an outdated and uh, a bigoted concept? So I think um, in order to develop the culture that we need, we also need a, a reflourishing of, um, I would say, of course, an objectivist uh, philosophy, but a philosophy grounded in, in man's uh, heroic potential. Uh, so this period, when you were writing that letter, the late 70s in the book, you say it marked the beginning of a long period of comparatively sluggish progress that has persisted until the present. First, help us explain how you measure progress, particularly with regards to productivity and what were some of the factors that contributed to that downward shift? Yeah, well... It's it's not an easy it's, it's not an easy thing to measure. You can look at economic growth, and what drives economic growth really over the long run is something called productivity growth, which is, you know, how much output can a worker really produce over a certain period of time, and what drives productivity growth over the long term is technological progress. And they and and statistically, if you look at that, that productivity growth driving economic growth downshifted in the early 1970s. And you can look at the numbers, but you can also look at what we didn't get, what people sort of imagined we would have by now from the 60s, which didn't happen. But even again, just looking at the stats, we went from people, let's just put it this way. If we had grown as fast as what people expect in the 60s, instead of having a $25 trillion economy today, we might have a $100 trillion economy today. So it was really a big downshift from what our expectations were uh and you know and how that those expectations manifested you know it's it's we don't have an orbital economy you know we, we're not mastering the solar system uh we 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 don't have you know vaccines from for cancer and alzheimer's uh we, we don't have bubble cities under the ocean all, all that great stuff and of course the flying cars but as to why that downshift happened there's sort of these kind of like macro factors we sort of exploited all the you know all the great inventions of the second industrial revolution electrification chemicals internal combustion engine that it sort of that was going to happen but we didn't really replace them with great inventions uh of, of the future so, and why didn't we which and i think that was that was from us like that was our decision we we began to regulate as if it didn't really affect innovation and our capacity to build uh government stopped doing what its role is which is to fund the kind of research that businesses usually want the kind of very basic blue sky research after apollo was not really followed by anything and that kind of funding really declined uh so i think especially th- those two things things we had control over we failed to do and i think the bigger question is why did we fail to do it how much of a role did the neo-Malthusian perspective of, on population growth from intellectuals like Paul Ehrlich, uh, as well as environmental doomsday uh, scenarios have in driving this more techno-pessimistic culture? Yeah, I you know I went into this book. I didn't want to write a you know a, a completely unsurprising book. You know, right winger writes a book criticizing environmentalists. Well, that's a that's a shocker. 
And I think in fairness, we were always going to have an environmental movement that focused on the sort of the trade-offs and downsides of growth. I mean, you see it across countries as they become richer, they begin to think a lot more about the trade-offs. But did we, was it for certain that we were going to have an environmental movement, as you say, that decided to reject growth, that decided to embrace uh, a, uh, a view that we were using up the planet, that meant that humanity was gobbling up all the resources, that there were too many of us, that any, that technical technological progress was actually bad for the environment and bad for us. Did we have to have that movement? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, that is the one we uh, we had sort of egged on by, you know, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, and 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 as you mentioned, the limits of the, the limits to growth book and Paul Ehrlich, and I think. You know, and I think the Vietnam War, which sort of radicalized a lot of these people that that companies were bad, companies were helping were helping, you know, create the weapons for war. So capitalism was bad. Business was bad. Everything was bad. And we had to shrink, retreat, get smaller, go back to nature. And then, unfortunately, uh, Hollywood absolutely picked up on that, began reflecting that view. So who was left to speak up for progress, for growth, for what humanity could achieve? There kind of really wasn't anybody, and it was really bipartisan. You talk about the possibilities of reigniting bolder innovations in energy, science, technology, transportation, but you say for that to happen, quote, America must become again an upwing country. That was a term that was totally new to me and perhaps most of our audience. Tell us a bit about that's why the book's not called upwing that's why it's not called upwing Upwing because it was completely nobody uh, nobody knew the term (laughs) well introduce us enlighten us right well um it's not a term i i I invented it does come out of the early uh the early 1970s and it's it's the it's the notion that rather than thinking about left and right uh as sort of the two great divides we should think about it as up versus down up being kind of thinking, looking toward the stars, uh, but specifically that man has enough wisdom and enough capacity and enough will to solve problems and move forward. And who knows, some of those some of those solutions, they might cause new problems, but we'll solve those two and we'll keep moving forward. The alternative is sort of the downwing, which is sort of looking into the dirt, which is we shouldn't do that. We can't solve problems. Technology will only call, make things worse. And I think you see that. And the reason I think it's up and down, not left and right, is that you can find elements of those on the left and the right. People who There's plenty of people on the left and right who don't like economic freedom. They worry that technology is just going to cause job loss. That's what we've seen with AI, where people worry it's going to, you know, take our, where AI is going to take our jobs and then kill us. That is on the left and right. So I think and while I'm 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 a person of the right, you can certainly find people I think on the left who also think, yeah, we we can solve problems. It was and it was really bad that we rejected nuclear power in the 1970s, and it's going to be really bad if we screw it up again with AI here uh, in the 2020s. So that's so that is my framing device. That if you we can disagree on like you know, what tax rates should be and what exactly programs should be funded or not funded, but if you fundamentally think we have it within our power to make the world better, more abundant, more prosperous, and spread out to the solar system. Yeah, then I then I then I think I think you're on my side. Well, I want to remind everyone that is watching, we've got another 45 minutes or so. So um go ahead, help me out, help uh, help us out with some questions. Um in terms of figures that our audience uh would be mostly familiar with is, of course, the famous upwinger in your t- t- terminology, Ray Kurzweil. Um, thoughts, um, you share some of them in your book, but thoughts on his predictions, particularly with regard to his vision of the coming singularity. Well, what's interesting is that uh, when I've talked about this book, people have focused, as we kind of have so far, on sort of those immediate post-war decades, 1950s and 60s, atomic age, space age, uh, you know, where you had, you know, CEOs, people of think tanks, government officials, public intellectuals slash sci-fi writers like, you know, Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, making big, bold, positive predictions. 
And that was an important period that I call Upwing 1.0. But then you also had that late 90s period is where, where I sort of discovered Ray Kurzweil through the pages of Wired Magazine, where you also had a lot of, and not just fast growth, that's that's part of it, and fast and obvious technological progress, but also a feeling that this was just the beginning of something amazing, that this was a, a moment pregnant with possibility. And, and it was really in that period that I certainly became aware of the notion that we could have growth so fast, so exponential, that we almost couldn't describe the world on the other side of that growth. It was a kind of a, a veil of uncertainty that we would, we, 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 and it's, and you see in science fiction, it's very difficult to write about those kinds of uh, scenarios. And I began reading a lot more about kind of radical life extension uh, and so forth. So, you know, uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, Wired Magazine, folks like Kevin Kelly, all very po uh, positive, very optimistic. And again, having gone through that period and been in that period as a journalist in California, I too thought like this is that something is happening here, that finally the dreams of the post-war decades, we took a pause, but now it is full speed ahead and 21st century is going to be wild. And what one of the, one of my favorite things that I, and I, I held on to, I've held on to it for 20 years was a, uh, a report put out by Lehman brothers in December of 1999, predicting what the next 10 years would be like, what the first decade of the 21st century would be like. And it was extremely bullish, rapid growth, a repeat of the 60s, the digital economy exploding. But that's not really what we got. And of course, Lehman Brothers didn't even make it a full 10 years uh, after <laughs> that. And we had a another downshift, which we're sort of still experiencing today. And figures like uh, like Ray Kurzweil or uh or or, or and, and that optimism from the late 90s it looks kind of it looks kind of quaint because it didn't quite happen and i'm hoping that it won't look very quaint five years from now that we are again at that moment that i don't want to blow up most of my life has been spent during the great downshift i want to spend like the next chunk of it in the great upshift well before we leave the the downshift entirely and i know you don't want to drone on and on about um, the impact of environmental regulations, but um, you did give as, as sizable as they have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I, you know, I don't want to gloss over it either. And you had an interesting example in the book with regards to the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA regulations um, and how they have hamstrung particular projects, whether public or private, uh, including those being pursued by Elon Musk's boring companies. So maybe just give us an example or two so we kind of can understand what this, what the impact is in, in real life. Yeah, you know, it's it's one it's it's maybe the most important of a number of environmental regulations that were passed in the early 1970s. And you know, when I've spoken about this book, people are like, well, that, you know. That's that's a long time ago. Why, you know, you know, sur surely you can't continue to blame a law passed a half century ago for why it is why it is time consuming and expensive, and to fill out massive, you know, five thousand page documents that take years to complete, uh, to build to build roads, bridges, uh, high speed rail, you know, nuclear reactors, all that stuff. Surely that can't still be the problem. Yet once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere, whether it's building windmills, uh, whether it's building the factories to build windmills, whether it's high-speed rail in California, whether it's any, almost any project of any size uh, anywhere, and people want to apply it to space as well, where you have to show what the environmental impact of your actions are. And it's not, and it's really purely a procedural law. It doesn't it doesn't you don't even have to demonstrate like that it solves a problem. It's purely a procedural law, but number of pages and the time to complete it have grown grown longer and longer. And you know, and again, you can look there's research, you know, just basic economic research showing uh just how how much more expensive it makes uh, it makes building is it, it, you it brings in, you know, all these sort of citizen groups, people who just don't want, you know, a new highway in their backyard, what they call citizen voice. And it, it gives them a role in the process. Of course, it's it's a way of slowing down the process and the result, something that was passed by Congress as sort of a, 
you know, mother and apple pie. It's just kind of express a preference that we think about the environment when we do things. Who could be against that? Has turned over 50 years into a major obstacle to get anything, uh, any project of any size at all done in the United States. I just do not. And, and now that, you know, the Biden administration suddenly has discovered this as well as they're trying to, like, you know, build transmission lines and solar farms and wind turbine farms. And I just don't see with that law and the mini versions in all the states how we can really physically build like the kind of tomorrow that I think many of us would really want. I mean, good luck building coast to coast nuclear fusion reactors, uh, you know, with laws like that on the book. All right. We're going to dip into some audience questions because there oh, I are love the a audience. lot I love them. It. Oh, All right. Um, from YouTube, our friend My Modern Galt is back. He says, big Pethacoucas fan. Did we fail to reach the future we imagined in the past, or did we just not consider where the future was going to head? For example, miniaturization of computers and phones. Right. I, to be clear, like I'm not imagining that we should have or that we should have in the past or should have now like a department of the future. You know, I'm, I'm like the fifth floor of a new, you know, fancy glass and steel building where you have a bunch of PhDs in a room with big flat screens and they're moving things around like a minority report through gestures trying to plan the future. That that's not I mean, I don't know. I give some like ideas of, like what I would like to see in the future, or what some other people are talking about, but I don't know exactly what it should look like. But when we create barriers to certain kinds of outcomes where we make it hard to build in the physical world and thus we the innovation we do see tends to be, uh, you know, with computers rather than in space or underwater or with energy, then we have picked a certain direction with our progress. I'm I think like all of the above, we were we were we're it is a big world. We are a rich country. I think we could we could sort of advance on all fronts that we could have an that we could have had an IT revolution, but also further progress with nuclear energy or in space. Indeed, those would all combine to help each other. That's what's so great about like AI today. It's a combinatorial technology that not only uh you know might it help us solve problems easier by helping us think through things and and connect the dots but already have you know uh you know uh, nuclear fusion researchers using ai and it's being used with crispr it's a kind of technology that enables other technologies so i think that had we gone a different direction in policy that we would have had sort of multiple revolutions sort of all feeding off each other and where that would have taken us, I don't know exactly, but I'll, I'll take my chances. All right. Also on YouTube, That's a great question. King, Kingfisher21 says, I see a lot of people in their 20s who see a future as worthless. And so they don't have kids and just live in perpetual angst. What would you say to these young people? You know, I, uh, I, I did a podcast. And after the podcast was over, the 20-something producer said, everything you're saying I think all my friends believe like just the opposite. I think that gets at that question. I, listen, I have no doubt they believe. If you're if you're just a a reader of the New York Times, you would think that you know almost almost assuredly tomorrow is going to be worse. That the climate's going to be chaotic. That uh, technological progress will only help the rich. And a movie like Elysium, which shows all the rich people having left Earth, they're living on a space station, and we're all down here in the rubble fighting it out. That that, that that's the future. Like that's that may be the best version of the future because at least we still exist. That I don't think. What I obviously I think that's wrong, and I and I and I and I think I, I make a pretty persuasive case in that that is wrong. But I don't see how we can go on thinking that is the best we can do there are problems uh just take climate i mean would we be talking about climate change right now if we had if we just had coast to coast nuclear reactors and imagine nuclear reactors with 50 years of learning by doing and experimenting and research 
we might already have these coast to coast fusion reactors and we wouldn't be talking about climate change. I think oh, you can look at problem be. after problem <laughs> like that. Pardon? Or we, or we might be, depending on on how much is is being caused by humans and and how much is is being caused by by other factors. But we certainly wouldn't be talking about it in in the same kind of we wouldn't way. be talking about it that we need to go all you know we need to go la- back to nature and live like we did in the eighteen hundreds. We wouldn't be talking about that. So technology is a tool that we can use, and we kind of forgot about that, and we thought that it wouldn't really it wouldn't really help us. So. Uh, I, I, I hope that the book is somewhat a corrective to that pessimism, but man, oh man, it would be really great if Hollywood would make fewer mo- movies showing that tomorrow is going to be awful. <laughs> All right. Um, Candace Morena on Facebook says, uh, Jim, you mentioned people were pessimistic in the past because they feared nuclear war. That sentiment seems to have come back with a vengeance in the past two to three weeks. How do we pull these people back from doom. Uh, I'll venture kind of the answer myself. Again, it's uh, it goes back to, to principles. It goes back to philosophy. It goes back to whether or not you are in an aspirational mode um, where you want to improve life on earth um, and you're celebrating life or, or whether you actually think that this is just a pale shadow and that if you sacrifice yourself and you you not sacrifice others, but kill others that you will move on to a, a better, higher plane. And um, and I think also, Jim, to what you were talking about in that that movie, that it was still keeping with these ethics of of envy and sort of hatred of the good, hatred of uh, ad- advance and um, hatred of, of people doing things differently. Um, and I, I think that those are all kind of very atavistic, very um nihilistic and irrational counterproductive uh cultural elements that are are still with us in in some ways even stronger than they've been in many many years you know i love the you know it's very interesting you know the question about nuclear war because my sort of role model for you know for the conservative futurist in the book is uh, someone who used to be a very big name, uh, uh, this guy Herman Kahn, who ended up running a think tank called the Hudson Institute. But in the 1960s, he was a nuclear war theorist. Uh, he was an inspiration for the character, the, the mad the mad uh, nuclear scientist in Dr. Strangelove. And he was kind of this, he was painted as kind of this dark character who wanted us to fight and win a nuclear war and that he didn't take it seriously because he thought sort of our our that we Amer- America's Yankee can-do optimism would allow us to rebuild. So, but he went from being this nuclear war theorist in 1960s to really being a very optimistic, sunny, you know, scenario planner and futurist in the 70s, who did you know classic kind of what futurists did back then, which different scenarios. But at the heart, he believed in the power of techno capitalism to create a better world. And I, I quote him in my, and, and when he died in 83, Ronald Reagan called him a futurist who embraced the future. He didn't fear the future as so many futurists later became uh, very, very negative. But his his advice, and this may, this is a great summary of like conservative futurism, is that, that, look, if we get a little bit of luck and we just, and we don't make extraordinarily stupid decisions will be okay. We don't have to make a bunch of perfect decisions. We don't we don't need to be a you know a perfect people, but if we just make enough good decisions, we'll be okay. And I think we've made a lot of good decisions, but we didn't make quite enough. So I think like I would rather live today than 1990, 1980, 1970. But if we made a few more good decisions, I think things could be so much better and we would have a more prosperous world. Everybody would be more prosperous. And I just don't think in a world of that kind of abundance and that kind of prosperity, I think that is a more peaceful world. And maybe we wouldn't be talking about uh, the risk of nuclear war right now uh, because we'd all be pursuing more interesting things in our own lives. Yes, we would be pursuing our long-term rational self-interest. Ayn Rand is mentioned in the book. Ayn Rand is mentioned in the book. 
Well, uh, we, why don't you talk about that? Uh, well, I, 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 <laughs> I, I noticed that, of course, uh, yeah. about the Apollo um, 11 launch. Yeah, it's one, it's actually maybe, uh, you know, one, one of my favorite things I just kind of, you know, that's the great thing about writing a book is when you kind of just uncover things. It's really an act of discovery. Uh, and I, I just found an interesting like essay that she had written because she had been invited down uh, to Cape Canaveral for the Apollo 11 launch. And it's it's a marvelous essay, and I quote a tiny little bit. And, you know, and what she said was that if you just read the newspapers, especially, now, again, this is by the late 60s of the Vietnam War and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of trouble in big cities, that you would think that humanity was going down the drain, a nonstop beat about things are getting worse. And then to sit there and see this, what man's mind can produce was just awe-inspiring. And uh, and obviously it was. But my own one problem is that like that we had to kind of go back to like the 60s to find those awe-inspiring moments when we should have a civilization that is generating them left and right. I mean, I I thought by now, like, you know, we would, you know, we would have mastered the solar system. Well, better late than never. But I'm inspired when I see a SpaceX Starship just sitting on the launch pad. And if you don't, and you don't understand what that could represent, uh, that's a downwing thinking. I actually feel sorry for those people because they'll dismiss it and say, oh, it's just a rocket. It's not just a rocket. It is what we have been able to produce. And it suggests what we can produce in the future and that and, and that we are not meant just to stay on this planet, but we can go out into the universe Find more opportunities out there, find resources out there, find adventures out there. So that was so when I see that rocket, that spaceship rocket for, uh, from SpaceX, that's what I see. And again, I pity the people who don't see that. And all they see is like a billionaire's plaything or something. That's it's sad. So, um, you know, mentioning Ayn Rand, of course, this theme of hers, of human achievement, of what is possible to man, uh, goes back through so many of her uh, fictional works, um, even going back to to Anthem, and uh, the, which is interesting. It's even though it was written well well before 1984, about 13 years before 1984. Of course, well before Atlas Shrugged. It is in some ways a sequel to 19 to to Atlas Shrugged. If we made very very bad decisions, right? Because her view of uh, dystopia was different than uh, Orwell's. She didn't see collectivist um, policies as propelling us forward. She didn't see uh, a collectivist future of telescreens. She saw a collectivist future of uh, primitive feudalistic conditions. Um, and then, of course, uh, our, our forthcoming graphic novel is called Top Secret. It's based on notes that Ayn Rand uh, wrote for a screenplay she was commissioned to write after um, World War II and the atomic bomb. And it was really all about how the making of the atomic bomb was only possible to the men of free minds and a free society. And that that there was, um, you know, the geniuses in in both countries, but uh, there's something about being able to operate in freedom. So that kind of dovetails into another question that we have here from another regular on X. Uh, Zach Carter is asking about the title, Conservative Futurist. Um, he's saying some might argue that being conservative is about uh, the future, is that we should be staying how things are. But I, I think you're using conservatism kind of differently. It's not necessarily about uh, sort of a traditionalist uh, returning to uh, the way things were, except in some ways maybe it is, but uh, more of a commitment to an optimistic and uh, a, a, a freer freer society uh, and a capitalistic one. But tell us why you chose the title. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I think because yeah. a plane wasn't wasn't accessible to everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, right. right. <laughs> the phrase more it was more familiar. Maybe the title's different. Uh, but but like the conservative part to me is really conserving 
the best of our inheritance of the past, which is uh, which is liberalism, which is a belief in political and economic freedom and a belief in sort of social dynamism where you can climb the ladder and your position today doesn't depend on where you were born. Though, to me, that's an extremely valuable inheritance that it is incumbent upon us to build upon and then provide hopefully in even a healthier fashion to our children, Edmund Burke, you know, famously talked about the connection between the past, the present, and the future. And I and I think and I agree with that that we there is this connection that we were that we've been given, we have been be, be, bequeathed this 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 amazing thing called freedom, both politically and economically, and that provides the found that it provides the foundation for what I think is a the the kind of future that we would want to live in, that people have the freedom and opportunity and tools to build the kind of tomorrow they want. Again, this isn't about me saying that this is exactly what the future, this will be an organic thing, but we need to create sort of the ecology for growth through, I think, a pro-progress culture, through public policy. I mean, I work at a think tank, so obviously I think policy is pretty important. So that to me, that's, preserving that inheritance that's the conservative uh part of the conservative futures now i realize today some people might not define it like that they might define it as 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 wanting to go back and live in, in you know 1963 or or something like that and it's a real and a real yearning for tomorrow for yesterday that is not what i want uh again i would rather live today than yesterday and hopefully that we can create you know a better future that that uh, that in 20 years I'll be like yeah I, I'm really glad I'm living I'm living in 2040 and 2050 and not 2020 and I and I think that will be the case but I'm not 100% sure all right uh, George Alexopoulos on Facebook has a two-part question which hinges on whether you are familiar with or have read Walter McDougall's The Heavens and Earth I uh, I have not okay so we will move on to Peggy who uh, but, is but I'm happy to pretend with- <laughs> no, that's all right. Oh, right. Uh, we we do not believe in faking reality here at the <laughs> Atlas Society. Um, okay. Peggy C. is asking uh, in our Zoom audience, how would you address some of the common fears about uh, abusive AI? And she says, I love your optimism and vision. Right. I, I mean, I think it, I, so it was last November that we had OpenAI release, you know, chat GPT sort of into the wild. And we had about, what, 15 minutes where we're like, wow, this is neat. And we can have, you know, I, I can I can pretend to be Winston Churchill, like giving, you know, you know, writing an essay about something going on today. This is great. And then and then immediately we sort of downshifted into uh it's gonna, you know, increase inequality, the take our jobs and these sort of existential threats. Uh with and speaking of culture, with you know, the film The Terminator as sort of the cultural uh, touchstone, you know, for these, you know, very pessimistic visions. My view is, in a way, we've been here before, which is in the late 1990s, we had a brand new technology that was evolving quickly. Uh, and we decided we weren't going to create a massive new, you know, regulatory scheme to try to guide it and predict where it was going to go. We decided to have a very light approach let entrepreneurs and the markets develop it and see where it, where it would take us. And if there were problems, we would just fix them on the fly. And to me, that is really the only way, the only sensible way, if we're going to fully exploit this technology that I think will be extraordinarily important, if we let it be important, is to let the innovators innovate don't let just a few companies with Washington policy offices and lobbyists innovate, but let you know a thousand innovative flowers bloom, open source, and as problems arise, we will fix them as they come. That is the only way I think to get to get this technology to be as productive as it possibly can. I certainly do not trust an 111 page executive order going into minute detail, empowering empowering agencies which already don't like the American technology sector and have them give them even more power. I think that's a way to have another 50-year downshift, another 50-year great stagnation. 
and and have this technology, you know, just be and to be. Listen, progress delayed is progress denied. Listen, uh, uh, yesterday in the New York Times there's a great piece about the FDA uh, approving a uh, or at least an advisory panel at preliminary approval for a, a new vaccine for sickle cell disease, um, uh, you know, based on CRISPR genetic editing. Listen, you know, CRISPR uses AI. All these technologies would not be here if we did not have the internet to do research and collaborate. I, I don't want I don't want a sickle cell cure to be delayed by five years or, or an Alzheimer's cure to be delayed by five or ten years because the you know, Federal Trade Commission is investigating these companies or investigating you know new companies, preventing new companies from being born. Uh, that is a that is a tremendous, almost incalculable loss. Now now spread that loss across the entire economy. It's it, it's it's to me it's nightmarish. I don't, I'm not going to entirely gloss over what uh, George Alexopoulos said, because even though I certainly, and you haven't either read this book, The Heavens and Earth, um, he does mention the thesis that it advanced. And I do think it's kind of worth pondering and maybe you'll get an you know, off the cuff take on it. Sure. And that thesis being that the space race also marked a dangerous shift in the political and scientific cultures of America, one that moved technology out of the workshops of private inventors and into the realm of centralized government planning. Well, I mean, I mean, what's super interesting is, uh, so after the space race, the amount that government spend as a share of GDP on R&D began to decline. And after and what what did we see? Did we see uh, so we didn't see science research only being done at national labs by big companies. In fact, after that, we really saw the decline of the big corporate lab. And we did see the rise of the rise of sort of your garage inventors and Silicon Valley. Now, you know, Silicon Valley, a lot of things went to the creation of Silicon Valley. Uh, everything you could you could you could credit the counterculture. You can credit uh, the the Cold War, um, you know, a lot a lot of things. So I, I think there's a place for different, you know, different uh, entities doing different things. I think there's a place for government funded blue sky research. But. I've heard very little lately, and when we've been talking about doing more R&D funding or applied funding or industrial policy, there's been far less emphasis to me on the role of private enterprise in commercializing these technologies, experimenting these technologies, making them useful, because ultimately they need to be made useful. Uh, and I, I I hope this is a momentarily a momentary pause that we remember that the big advantage we have over, say, China is uh, is not that our engineers are necessarily smarter, but we have a system that rewards people for taking risks. And it, we're not at the behest of government to direct us what the, what risk should be taken. Uh, I think the free enterprise system over the long term will pr prove to be far more productive than uh, perhaps what the engineers in Beijing think. Well, it's interesting um, what you mentioned about China is very much top of my mind because uh, we had decided to try to lower the prices of our annual 365 days of Ayn Rand inspiration calendar. So we found uh, what seemed to be a reputable company over in China, um, but uh, they have a CCP representative there and they looked at the content and they said, uh, you know, last minute, you, you the company is saying we don't have permission to proceed with uh, your contract. So um, I, I thought that was interesting. And uh, you you also you know mentioned um, that politicians on both sides of the aisle are in danger of learning the wrong lessons from China's so-called state capitalism. Of course, I remember back in um, April of 2020. California's Governor Gavin Newsom had said this about China, quote, one of the things we could all agree on is the ability in an authoritarian one-party system to move very quickly and do things that are beneficial. Also, probably to move things very quickly and do things that are extremely destructive. But uh, what are the right and wrong lessons that we should be learning from uh, China's growth and current situation? 
Yeah, indeed. I remember I was in China in 2011 and hearing Americans there marvel at the ability for this all of society effort to to attack big centralized goals. So for about again, so for a short period of time, it seemed like they had figured out a new way to 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 do progress, to do, uh, you know, cutting edge technological progress. Uh and, and then I think that really did help feed sort of this industrial policy moment that we're seeing in the United States. But I, I think that that was a very short term lesson. And we're seeing a country which, despite being still very poor, uh, may never get rich. Weak productivity growth, slowing economy. It would not surprise me that over the next 10 years, the American economy, at least I think we certainly have this potential to actually grow faster than the Chinese economy, which would have seemed like a ridiculous statement to make five years ago. And we have seen the limits of central planning to really push forward the technological frontier, except in some very narrow areas. Hey, that's great. I'm really glad that the Chinese AI is really good at like surveillance. But I'm not sure that that is going to make that country richer, that they are creating an environment where creative and imaginative people can 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 take risks and dream big dreams and turn their thoughts into crystals of imagination. I don't think in that society where you're worried about the camera looking over your shoulder, uh, that that is a again, that is a viable system of the long term. Again, I will concede that they've got they've done great at surveillance AI, but uh, the rest of it less impressive. All right, another interesting question from our friend Kingfisher twenty one on YouTube um, asks Jim, "What was your view on the lockdowns and the damage it did to global productivity?" You actually write about how there was this kind of moment of increased productivity, but maybe talk a little bit about uh, how the, those um, two years of 2020, 2021 uh, affected and had an impact on the great downshift or thinking about yep. um, the ecological system that we need to foster um, progress and innovation. Yeah, and that, and that really that is a way to think of it as kind of like, you know, an ecology, as an ecology, something not necessarily mechanistic. Um, I would like that the lesson, one lesson to be learned from the pandemic was that it's really good to be a rich, technologically advanced nation where you where you don't have to make perfect predictions, nor you ha nor act on those predictions. Listen, there were every think tank, you know, in America had done something about the dangers of a pandemic and every poly national politician had been briefed on what we should do. And yet we get a pandemic. And we're like, where are the ventilators? Where are the masks? Where is everything? Oh, no, we're, we don't have this. What mattered was not was not you know our preparation or all those reports, but the ability to be to, to be to, to grapple with this problem by creating vaccines and treatments, being rich and technologically advanced. Listen, I love to prepare, but in this case, we saw that that's more important. And I would hope that politicians going forward would see that that is that policies to make us richer and more technologically advanced are really good. And I'll tell you, uh, on the productivity side, we will see the long-term, horrific long-term impact of ruining our child's educations for three years. Um, one of the most enduring and widespread finding in economics is that school matters and kids learning matters and kids not learning really matters and it's highly damaging whether you're in a developing country or a rich country and uh to have ignored that finding the way we did uh you know shame on us yeah i mean i might have a slightly different view about the preparedness it, it does seem like we actually had extensive um government world health organization uh cdc plans for how oh, to deal a lot with of plans it. But the plans, a lot of plans, the plans, a lot of plans. You know, the, but the plans, it, it seemed like the plans changed. So they had looked at all of the studies and none of the studies recommended lockdowns. Um, they had looked at all of the studies on respiratory viruses and uh, personal protection equipment. And so none of the plans recommended masks. And then all of a sudden we said, 
oh no, we do need masks and uh, we do need lockdowns and China's doing it this way, they must know something. So, you know, there, there was some preparation, we just didn't follow any of it. So I, I'd say that was also part of the, part of the problem. Um, all right, uh, one question that I wanted to get to, because again, you know, this goes back to our culture, it goes back to our philosophy, this altruistic focus that we always uh, want to support uh, philanthropy for uh, the, the needy, the disadvantaged, the underprivileged. Um, but I think you make a case in the book that it is the very, very rare productive geniuses that invent the technology that moves us forward and that spurs these leaps in productivity. Maybe talk a little bit about that, either with regards to education or with regards to um, immigration, uh, that, you know, we have our own homegrown John Galtz and Hank Reardon's and innovators here, but we also import them like Elon Musk and Amjad Massad and Sergey Brin. So maybe talk a little bit about from, from your perspective. Yeah. How do we get more geniuses? And yeah. locking down our schools definitely not on the go list. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I once heard uh, Elon Musk, uh, you know, say this in person, that if you want to do something great with your life, and that you know that can mean a lot of things. That can mean everything from starting a great company to you know uh, starting a bodega that takes care of your family. That 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 you have you have improved the future of your family. But if you want to do something great with your life, there's no better place to do it than the United States in America. And woe be the day that that is not true. Uh, really, I think you know one of the, the the deep magic of the American economy is the ability for people to either come here or people who are here to do great things, take big risks, and yes, be rewarded for their risks. Because whatever that reward is, even if that reward is a fortune of $100 billion, the benefits they will have given all of us far exceed whatever, whatever the, the personal wealth is really just a sliver of the benefits they have given to society. So any sort of economic plan the disregards the importance of entrepreneurs or what we somebody like Musk, who I might call a, a super entrepreneur, which we are able to uh, uh, generate in a way no other big country can. Uh, that that is that is pretty darn important, and that we that our children don't learn about this, that they that they don't know about really. It's not just heroes of capitalism, but heroes of our society that have created the modern world. That someone can go from you know kindergarten and graduate high school, and only know uh, you know Elon Musk as the you know as a billionaire Twitter guy, or or not know you know Vanderbilt, you know uh, Carnegie, uh, only you know not understand like how Microsoft was, but understand none of those stories. Um, that is an incomplete uh, education. And Herman Kahn, who I mentioned earlier, mentioned, you know, one, one of his big themes was that a sure way to undermine, you know, a, a, a sort of a heroic capitalist market society is to not tell those stories that people forget. And they think like the good stuff just kind of happens, you know, like, you know, like, you know, rain from the clouds and we can only focus on redistributing that rain. No, it, no, it just doesn't happen. And if you look at most countries, it doesn't happen at all. So I think that telling those stories, and one thing I'm, I'm happy to see is that, you know, an effort to fill all those streaming channels, we're seeing a few more stories about like how businesses were built. There was a great movie. I'm not sure if it was Netflix or maybe Amazon Prime about about Tetris, which really is a great which which shows you know you know, you know global capitalism in the Cold War. Uh, a really uh, a really great movie. So there's a lot of stories to be told, and if Hollywood won't tell them, then we'll have to tell them. But our children should know them. And of course, Ayn Rand tells them uh, fictionally in Atlas Shrugged. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've always found so puzzling and so distressing is uh, when I go to some technology conferences, like I go to Abundance 360, and I'm there with my Ayn Rand pin, and I'm there with my Atlas Shrugged uh, 
purse. And of course, Peter Diamandis, who is one of our um, honorees and a supporter of the Atlas Society. He, of course, is very upwing with all of his books. But so you have all of these people paying a lot of money to, to be there, to marvel at all of these um, up and coming uh, technologies and innovations. And yet they still embrace uh, this obsession with income inequality. Uh, they, they still embrace this uh, social justice agenda. And it, you know, kind of reminds me of Ayn Rand um, talking about uh, before anything can be distributed, it needs to be created. And so we need to focus on, on the needs of the creator. And all of these people, whether they are there representing a VC firm or they are there uh, looking for VC funding, um, they, on a very practical level, they, they know that there is, there's none of this, uh, these inventions that they're, they're all looking for capital or looking to invest capital, but they somehow have a disconnect between capital and capitalism and still take a very negative view of capitalism. You know, uh, you know, uh, one interesting thing that people laughed at him that Donald Trump said was that he's like, they I'm not going to do a Trump impression, but he's like China, they call China a developing country. Well, maybe we're a developing country. Well, that's kind of true, actually. I think compared to where we could be in 25, 50, 100 years, we're all developing countries compared to how, how rich we could be in the broadest sense of the term in 100 years. We are all poor compared to our future selves and our children. And the best way that to make us richer in the future and that the poor today, the people who are considered poor today should be as rich as anybody else, which is something environmentalists and degrowthers are already saying that can never be. If you are you are if you are very poor today in a poor country, you can never live like the, the West lives. That for the best way for that to happen is to make the world richer, and you make the world richer through economic freedom. That's how we took a billion people out of poverty—a secular miracle uh, over the past twenty-five years. You know, people—it is still like an un to me a, a still a an untold story. That it wasn't all the it wasn't foreign aid or UN programs. It was making China richer by investing and trading with China and India and Vietnam. That is what created that miracle of prosperity. So I, so again, I think we've talked about technology as a tool. Well, guess what? Markets are a kind of tool as well, and and they and they have been employed in the past to make us richer. And again, uh, to me, that is a key tool to make us richer in the future. All right. With the minute we have left, we've already put the links in on all of the uh, chat streams about the book. Uh, by the way, folks, I can highly recommend the Audible version. It's extremely well done. And Ayn Rand, Rand's name is pronounced correctly. Um, but also, us... also, I did not do the Audible version. That's why it's good. Because it's <laughs> hey. not me. You know, that I think is uh, was very selfish of you because you said, hey, I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. And I'm not going to spend my time training to be a, you know, voiceover narrator. I'm going to be working on my Faster Please Substack. So tell Thank us you. a little bit about that. If we go and sign up, what we can expect when we subscribe. Uh, it, it, it is a newsletter devoted toward toward progress, economic growth. Uh, it has a lot. It has a lot of economics in it, but also has a lot of culture. I also try to interview interesting technologists uh, and, and economists and, and other thinkers. So it's a combination of essays and Q and A's and podcasts, all with the fundamental idea of trying to think hard about how to create, invent a world we all might want to to live in, and that and that that can be. Uh, it can be through public policy, it can be through a better culture, it can be through building better tools. So that's, I, I love doing it. It comes out, you know, three times a week and I'd love if people would check it out. All right, we'll do that. Well, uh, thanks, Jim. I really enjoyed this. And oh. thanks for your magnificent achievement. And thanks also for some of the recommendations that you gave in the book <laughs> for people who are looking for uh, kind of optimistic science fiction and some kind of Randian oriented one. I am <laughs> listening to your recommendation of Marcus Seiki's Brilliant. Ah! <laughs>
<laughs> yes, three three books. It's a trilogy, but uh, they're they're pretty great. All right. Okay. And I also want to thank all of you who watched, all of you who chimed in with your awesome questions. Um, of course, if you enjoy this video, if you enjoy any of our other content or educational programming, go ahead and head over to our donate page. Consider making a tax-deductible donation. All first-time donations are going to be matched. So thanks in advance. Uh, and then be sure to join us next week when Bitcoin entrepreneur Robert Breedlove is going to join the Atlas Society Asks uh, to talk about the viral video that he produced um, reading Francisco Danconia's money speech from Atlas Shrugged, as well as his podcast, What is Money? And his book, Thank God for Bitcoin. See you then.